Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 434 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, Rosalind Harvey speaks with Anne Morgan about learning another language so well you dream in it, the process of finding the voice for other writers' characters, and the link between writing and translating. Rosalind Harvey is a critically acclaimed literary translator who has been responsible for bringing a number of leading Latin American and Spanish voices into English. A founding member of the Emerging Translators Network and a mentor of a number of early career translators, she is a great champion of the craft of moving stories between languages. She started off by reminding me how closely writing and translating are intertwined. I suppose I should start by repeating a phrase that translators are often talking about and talking about more in recent years, which is that translators are writers. I think for me, I started writing before I was thinking about being involved in a career as a literary translator. I've always written. I used to write poetry as a child. I wrote short stories, I recorded my dreams, I've always kept a diary. So there's always been some form of me putting words to paper. And I studied Spanish at school. I had an uncle, still have an uncle actually, who lived in London when I was growing up. And he was always very interested in Latin America and in Spain and used to take me out to lots of Spanish related places when I went to visit. And I think that's where the interest in Spanish came from. It was offered at school and I did a GCSE and then an A-level. And then I did an undergraduate degree in Hispanic studies. And I suppose that's where I first started translating as part of the degree, although it's very different to the kind of translation work I do now. And I then did a master's in literary translation, which is where a lot of this stuff kind of solidified into, into a practice. It was only then really that I started to think of how it might look like to work as a literary translator. So speaking with authors and that really intricate process of bringing a book from one language into another one. So your Spanish skills, were they, how, how did you develop that? Because it's actually very hard living in the UK, isn't it, to develop language to a, a strong enough level to translate. How did, how did that happen for you? Yeah, I think it is hard. Um, there's not as much value placed on, on modern language learning or any kind of language learning really in this country as, as I would like. I was lucky, as I say, because various languages were offered at my school. Hmm. But it wasn't really until I was an undergrad studying Hispanic studies and I got to spend a year abroad um, in Latin America where hmm. I had that sort of fully immersive experience. If that hadn't happened, I'm not sure if I'd really be where I am today. But it was that living and existing in another language, speaking it all the time. I ended up dreaming in it, doing your shopping every day. I was attending a Peruvian university, so I was studying and producing essays in the language. This was when I was in my early 20s, so I suppose at a time when maybe it's more likely for that um for that kind of language learning to be more deeply embedded in your brain. <laughs> I imagine if I started learning another language now that I'm 40, it might not go in as easily. <laughs> Could be an interesting experiment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. And how did you make the step to to being a translator professionally? I mean, for a lot of people, that's that's a bit of a mysterious process, I think. I think it is still quite mysterious, although it's becoming less so. There are a number of really 
useful initiatives around which are aiming at demystifying the process, um, mm. which, yeah, which still is quite mysterious. For me, as I say, I wasn't really aware of, of literary translation as a practice, let alone a career, when I was a student. I mean, I would have been reading books in translation, but I didn't give a huge amount of thought to how they came into existence. That only really started once I graduated and I had a job the first two years after I graduated from my first degree as a bookseller in a small bookshop called Grant and Cutler, which doesn't exist anymore. It was sort of subsumed by foils, so it does exist in, in some form, I suppose. But I was working in the Spanish, Italian and Portuguese department for a couple of years. And one of the roles that I had was to check the books that came in from our Spanish suppliers and translate the blurbs on the back for the bookshop's catalogue, which got sent out to schools and universities and academics. And it was then that I started to realise that there was somebody behind these blurbs, there was somebody behind these books, they were being produced, there was this process of mediation. And it was around that time as well that I started attending the translation workshops at the Poetry Translation Centre in London mm -hmm. and really thinking about what it might mean to, to work in a role where I got to use the Spanish that I'd fallen in love with as an undergraduate and to, to carry on with this writing, which has sort of always been a practice in my life, but nothing that had ever been public, if you like. Now, you've translated some extremely well-known names, um, Juan Pablo Villalobos, um, whose uh, novel Down the Rabbit Hole was shortlisted for the Guardian First Book Award. And that book was actually instrumental not only in establishing his name in the English-speaking world, but also and other stories. The publisher, which at the time was a, really quite a new publisher and is now such a, a huge sort of a, a huge part of the international literature scene. I love reading Villalobos's novels through your translation. And it's such a strong, distinctive voice, such a, the rhythm is so powerful. How did you go about finding that register, finding that, that way of bringing his work through into English? What, what was that process like? Oh, that's a great question. I always like questions about this book because <laughs> it had such a special place in my heart for me. It was mm. the first book that I translated on my own. I'd done a couple of co-translations before with a great mm -hmm. translator called Anne McLean. But Down the Rabbit Hole was the book that I sort of brought to and other stories attention. They hadn't published anything before and Stefan Tobler, the publisher, was very generous and took a punt on, you know, a relatively unknown translator and asked me to translate it. Hmm. And it led to a really long lasting and fruitful working relationship between me and, and other stories and Juan Pablo. So it's a book that will always be a really, really special title for me. And in terms of the voice, I mean the voice was what drew me to the book, first of all. It's this incredible mixture of tenderness and claustrophobia uh, for anyone who hasn't read it it's told from the point of view of a of a young boy his age is never stated although interestingly in, interestingly enough readers always feel like they know how old he is hmm. people always say well I'm sure he was seven or I was adamant he was nine <laughs> <laughs> but I think he's somewhere in between range of seven and ten something mm -hmm. like that He's probably not secondary school age, but he's old enough to read the dictionary every night and learn the words, although he learns them slightly incorrectly, which is where part of the part of the tenderness comes from. And he has this voice which is partly built on the fact that he lives this very isolated existence. So he lives in a place which he calls the palace. He's not allowed to go to school. He doesn't have any friends his own age. He only knows his father and the various slightly dodgy adults around him in that environment, including a tutor 
who's brought in to, to teach him what he would have learned had he been going to school. And he learns these words from the dictionary. So his diction is really sort of fixed by the fact that he's in this strange um, claustrophobic environment where he doesn't have access to the speech of people out in markets, out in the street, at school, in, in normal workplaces. And he's also a child, so he mm. absorbs things and parrots them without fully understanding the context. Mm. And when I spoke to Juan Pablo about that voice, which is so unique, he talked about having, having wanted to develop a very powerful literary voice. Mm. But it's interesting to me that although clearly it is a literary voice, it's, it's also highly believable as a child's voice. And yeah. he wrote the book before he had children. In fact, I think his wife was pregnant with their first child when the book came out because it's dedicated to his, to his son. Mm-hmm. But while he was writing it, he didn't have children. And I think he, he has talked about sort of listening to friends' children speak and trying to sort of absorb some of the rhythms and intonations of the way that children speak. And so I was really conscious when I was working on it that it was this combination of someone who had listened to how children spoke, but also wanted to produce this quite stylized child's voice, which sits in a tradition of other famous um, children's voices in literature. And so one of the things I did when I was working on it was I read quite a few other books written in the in the voice of a child. I read Paddy Clark, Ha 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 by Roddy Doyle. I was Roddy just Doyle. thinking of that book, yes, a fantastic yeah. book. Yeah, I've and, read, and I can see that read, comparison actually really strongly. Yeah, I think I think they make for really good companion books, mm. actually. And I read Room by Emma Donoghue. Mm-hmm. There were a few other ones I can't recall right now, but I was trying to sort of absorb what it meant to produce a child's voice within Anglophone literature so that I could do something similar to what Juan Pablo had done in Spanish. Are there many comparable Spanish language children's voices in literature or was that quite a, a departure, what he was doing? Was he sort of carving a bit of a fresh path? I, I think, I mean, there there are Spanish language children's voices, but I, mm. I feel like what he was doing with that book was unique because of the very claustrophobic circumstances. He chose to place this boy in this extreme environment and obviously the way that it the way, largely the way that it works as a reader is that you have more knowledge than he does in terms of the things he's talking about. You sort of, you get to know quite early on what the situation is before Totchley, the, the main character, does. And it's that sort of extreme, yeah, it's that extremity of his existence, which I think is really unique. Mm. Now, I was struck recently, I, I read your translation of Villalobos' story, short story, This Side of the Wall, which is coming out in the Comma Press anthology celebrating yeah. 10 years of the English Pen Award. Um, and obviously that's a different voice, that's an adult voice there. But cultural references, it was very interesting. There were a couple of things that jumped out at me and it made me wonder. So um, I think Reader's Digest was mentioned at one point and, and the narrator says that his, I think, father or mother was a GP father I think um yes. again GP a very a British very British term how do you make that call about where to situate those references in terms of where your where your reader is and where the book is coming from where the text is coming from yeah it's a really good question and it's a really difficult one it's not difficult to answer just that the answer is is that annoying one that translators <laughs> often give which is it depends yeah of course <laughs> so it's yeah. it's very context dependent Mm. and I think it would be very rare for someone to say I have I have a particular strategy for that kind of problem and I will apply it across a book or across a short story because it, it doesn't really work like that mm. but the, yeah those two examples that you gave so GP 
I'm trying to think what it was in the Spanish now. I think it's possibly médico de cabecera. So it's mm-hmm. it's a, it's an analogous role that a doctor might have. It like I suppose like a family doctor, which might be the more American or or in term. The risk always with that kind of thing is that by picking GP in in this instance you sort of shut off the possibility of readers imagining this story is taking place in Mexico because they hear this very British term and they mm. think, well, hang on, that's a bit jarring. Mm. I thought we were in Mexico. But I suppose the argument for doing something like that is that it's a kind of, it's it's a very neutral term for most British readers. Mm. And so it can slip by unnoticed within the rest of the context of the story taking place in Mexico. Now, that's obviously not going to work you know, if an American reader reads this, because an Ameri- Americans don't have GPs, so you're mm. always alienating somebody. You can't please all of the people all of the time. You mm. have to land on one of these decisions. But I think it's quite, it can be quite interesting within one text to adopt an approach that is, you know, it's not that uncommon, I don't think, where you're you're looking at all of the Englishes that you have access to, and you might have a GP in one text, but you also might have a term that's used in American English or Canadian English or even Australian English, if there is a good enough reason to have that. You know, it mm-hmm. might be for sonic reasons. It might be there's a kind of poetic reason. You, you pick a particular word. You have to use all of the tools in your in your toolbox and the coherence, that the levels of coherence for that will, will vary depending on, on the text, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I think Reader's Digest was Reader's Digest, though, because they ah. did they did they literally had a, a subscription to Reader's Digest. Really, because um, I, I found that me- amazing. I thought, really, is that in Mexico? Is there Reader's Digest? But that's fantastic. I, yes, yeah. that was so. That one was just kept as it was. But ah. as I say, it really depends, and it's always a question of kind of weighing up what your readers will be comfortable with, what they'll tolerate, and what they will kind of. It's always I thought I always describe translation as is a kind of suspension of disbelief. You're sort of, you're asking your readers to suspend their disbelief and to kind of believe that they are reading the Spanish or whichever language it might be through your English. It's a kind of slate of hand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, it's a lovely way of, of putting it. And in fact, that brings me on to a, a question that I spend a lot of time thinking about, and I, I sort of devoted a whole chapter to in my book, Reading the World, which is the fact that translation as a concept is almost untranslatable. Um, we have so many metaphors for it. People talk about babel fishes or, mm. um, you know, conjuring tricks or ventriloquism. I mean, is, is sleight of hand the way you think about it? Or it, how, would you, how would you describe it as a process to someone who perhaps doesn't, doesn't know what it involves? Oh, I think we'll need a whole other podcast. <laughs> I mean, there are so there are so many metaphors, and that's one of the things I love mm. the most about translation. Anything for which there are that many metaphors is a very sort of slippery beast. It's mm. unpindownable, and that's why I think I and many other translators I know keep returning to it because you it, it's it's always slightly out of reach. The practice mm. you can describe it as being like acting. That's a very common translation yes. metaphor you know you're an you're interpreting someone else's words but your role is very important I recently did an event with Daniel Hahn who has a great metaphor which is to do with somebody copying a piece of artwork but using a different medium so mm. you might be looking at an oil painting but reproducing it in charcoal mm. so you're aiming to give a similar effect but some of the tools that you're using will be different I have a metaphor which I like to use which is you're cooking a dish from memory and you might not have all of the same ingredients in your cupboard but you can kind of approximate some of the flavours. So if you don't have ah. wine, you might use lemon juice and sugar, for example. Ah, I like um, that, yeah. But all of these, met- they're only ever going to be 
incomplete and imperfect and that's mm. part of the joy of of translation is that it kind of it generates it, it's constantly generating new ways of thinking about itself yes yeah now you translate um latin american writers but also spanish writers and i wondered if if you have to sort of adjust your your working process slightly between the two how close are those two kinds of spanishes and and do do you tend to to adopt a slightly different approach to them yeah that's a good question i translate far more latin americans to be honest mm. um i've not worked on that many spanish writers and i think for me there's great writing coming out of both regions mm. but i think i'll always feel a bit more comfortable working on latin americans because as i was saying before that's sort of where I suppose that's where I fell in love with Spanish. That's where I really immersed myself in it. And although my Spanish now is, it's quite rusty and it's a slightly strange sort of mongrel mix of Peruvian Spanish from 20 years ago, plus bits of Mexican and bits of Iberian Spanish from various friends that I now know and speak to in Spanish along the way. So it's a bit of a homeless Spanish, the kind of Spanish that I speak, but I always sort of tend towards Latino Spanish um, just because that's where I that's where I fell in love with it but yes there are definitely they are mutually intelligible but there are there are huge variations within all of the different Spanishes so a Mexican will understand someone from Madrid will understand someone from Uruguay but there's there's a lot of very different vocab that varies a lot across the region there's different grammar as well and different ways of structuring phrases so for example in Peru the syntax will be inflected by Quechua which is one of the, the main indigenous languages there. So mm. verb was, will often go to the end, for example. So there's a massive amount of variation depending on where you are. And it would be very difficult for any translator from the Spanish to feel like they knew and were comfortable working with all of those variations of the language. So mm. one of the best approaches is just to ask people that you know who spent time in those places. And there's also a limit. Like you, I might turn down a book if it was um, if it was a book from... I don't know, from Nicaragua, somewhere where I hadn't spent any time. And it may well be that there's another translator who's far better placed to work with that particular variety than mm. I am. So I think mm. knowing your limits is also a useful watchword. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Now, you talked about having a really long and fruitful relationship with uh, Villalobos. How does that working relationship go? Does it vary between writers or how do you like, what's your ideal working process with a writer? How much involvement do you like them to have? <laughs> Yeah, I think it does clearly vary a lot between mm. writers and translators. I mean, the most extreme example would be if you're translating a dead writer. There's obviously mm. not much of a relationship <laughs> can take place. Although some translators like to joke that that's the best scenario possible <laughs> because then they can't argue with your work. Mm. I've had a, a range of different kinds of relationships, I suppose. So partly because that first book, it was Juan Pablo's first book, Down the Rabbit Hole. It was the first book I translated. It was the first book under the stories published. So it was kind of this early crucible. That it all, it mm. felt like we all came up at the same time together. In, and I think that's maybe one of the reasons we've got this lovely long-standing relationship. Mm. But I've also got writers that I've worked with who we've just had a, a relationship via email. And all it's involved is me sort of acknowledging that I'm working on their book, sending them a few questions and then replying with, with the answers. And it's a sort of, you know, it's a courteous and a civil relationship, but it hasn't evolved into, into a friendship. And there's sort of everything in between. I know, I mean, for example, there are, there are quite a few writer, translator, husband and wife teams out there. There are translators who become very, very close um, with their writers. 
and there are other writers who don't have the time or the inclination to meet their translators so it sort of depends on the individuals involved mm. I think for me I like to feel that I can speak to an author to ask the million and one stupid questions that I will inevitably have about a text and I sort of feel especially now as I'm starting to write my own stuff I think I would feel quite uneasy if someone was working on my book and they didn't have any questions and they didn't want to reach out and and engage on some level about that process because mm. it's a hugely complicated process you know your translator is going to know your book inside out and part of that getting to know a book involves I would say speaking to the author if they're around and available. Mm. As you say you're starting to write your own material what prompted that what made you decide to take that that leap make that shift it was it was a range of things I suppose I mean as I said before I, I have always written but it's always mm. been a very private practice for me it's been a sort of a way of processing a way of figuring out what I think about things or figuring out what the questions I need to ask myself are and then I suppose during my translating life lots of questions kept emerging and re-emerging similar kinds of questions that I had about the process and about the industry and the profession and the way that it all sort of slots together and I started writing down some of these questions and seeing links between them and seeing a few possible answers to them and and during lockdown when I was at home a lot as we all were <laughs> I started to sort of realize that this um that it was more than just notes, it was more than just me trying to figure something out something out in my own head and I wanted to, to make it a bit more public and to maybe start asking some other people some of these questions and see what they had to say and it, it's starting to look like it could be a longer project. So it sort of comes out of a need to ask questions, I suppose, and to maybe ask other, some other people those questions. I mean, I've often thought that, because for me as a fiction writer, although I spent my 20s trying to write fiction and writing basically unpublishable stuff. It was only after I did the Reading the World project and had read all these um, extraordinary stories from all the all, all around the world, um, many of them that worked in ways that were very different to the tradition that I was familiar with. And it sort of blew open my imagination. And I can imagine that as a translator, I know that a number of writers almost learn their craft by sometimes even copying out yes. uh, writers, nov other writers' novels or short stories. And so uh, it seems to make a lot of sense that a translator might well begin to write their own material and in fact many of our most famous international writers translated as well between a number of languages it's just simply that so many English people don't speak or English speakers don't speak another language to the level of being able to translate that that I think perhaps isn't so much the case in the English language fiction but so that makes a great deal of sense. Um, yes exactly and I think for me producing a number of books over a number of years has been a really great apprenticeship in terms mm. of bashing out a certain amount of words in a day and just mm. feeling like I have produced a book although th there, there are differences between the two practice between the two practices mm. but just in terms of feeling like I have worked on a book and I know I can sit down in a day and type for a certain amount of time and I can think about what it means to reconstruct a sentence creatively. That's been a, a really great kind of training ground in terms of moving to, towards doing my own writing in a more serious way. 
Now, you've also been involved in lots of initiatives to increase people's awareness about the possibilities of translation, including the intriguingly named Real World Translation Treasure Hunt. Um, what, does, <laughs> what does that involve and, and, and why do you think it's important to do that sort of work? Oh, yes. So the treasure hunt is actually known as Word Keys. The, ah, okay. um, the real world translation treasure hunt is sort of a, a sub <laughs> a subheading. We called it Word Keys based on the title dreamed up by the guy who I originally developed it with. Um, mm-hmm. And it was it, it came about as part of a, a translation residency that I had at the sadly now departed Free Word Centre. Oh, I know. It's, it's such a shame. It is a shame. It was a really mm. wonderful, hopeful place. And they were... Yeah, they were brave or foolish enough to host one of the first translations. I think it was the first translation residency in the UK, which hmm. partly came about by um, plotting by Daniel Hahn, who I mentioned earlier, and Ros hmm. Ford. And I was there with a, another translator, Nikki Harmon, who works from Chinese. Yes. And our remit was to put together a programme of translation-related events that would demystify the practice for the general public. Um, and so we used Free Word Centre to host some of the events, but we also did a lot of events um, just out and about in London, which was really, really fun. And the, the translation treasure hunt was one of those. And I, I developed it in collaboration with um, a real world games designer, which is a, a, this great small organisation called Coney, as in Coney Island. Mm-hmm. And they're made up of mainly theatre makers, um, independent theatre makers. And so the brief that I gave them was I wanted a game that involved two teams of people moving around on the streets you know, sort of getting down and dirty and talking to stallholders and hmm. passers-by. And in some way, they would have to translate clues to get to some sort of prize at the end. And it's it's a really fun game. And it's it's also nice in the sense that it, it sort of functions as a metaphor for talking about metaphors for translation. It sort of functions hmm. as a real world metaphor for translation in many ways. So the teams always get through the game in very different ways. They all reach the end point. They sort of translate themselves through the clues in very different ways, depending on the makeup of the team or when it's happening, whether it's raining or not. It's a really nice way to get people to think about how languages connect all of us mm. um, and how talking to people on the street, you know, those kind of connections, those kind of unexpected connections we can make can lead to the game being being won. And the way that the game is won is that both teams have to collaborate. So it's also a really nice metaphor about collaboration. And it's been great to see in recent years a number of these questions being much more widely discussed and a lot more focus on the role that translators have. Uh, one of the big discussions at the moment is whether translators should translate two ways. Uh, traditionally, there's always been a, an assumption that a translator should work into their mother tongue, in certainly in the English language publishing yeah. world. And now that's being challenged with good reason, because it does actually limit uh, the circulation of text to a certain extent, and it limits what certain translators are able to do. Where do you stand on, on, on that question? How do, you, how do you feel about the idea of, of translating either way into Spanish or into English? Oh, I, I like this question. <laughs> I I think my views on it have changed. I think mm. when I was, you know, when I was just starting out, I think I'd probably swallowed wholesale the idea that you only translate into your mother tongue, mm. which is quite a lazy thing to do. Um, and I think now I, f- I feel very differently, you know, especially because I know lots of L2 translators, it, it gets called when you're working so out of your so-called mother tongue, which in and of itself is a slightly problematic term, I think. Yes, absolutely, yeah. But as you say, it limits the amount of work we have the privilege of reading. I have one 
colleague, for example, who works from Kurdish. I mean, how many quote unquote native English speakers do we know who are going to bother to learn Kurdish and translate mm. Kurdish literature for us? Very mm. few, I would argue. He works with a co-translator or with somebody who sort of will read various bits that he sends her just if he's unsure about certain English elements of the phrasing. Um, but I, I think sort of questioning whether somebody is able to translate out of their mother tongue if we're going to do that and sometimes it can be a valid question then it also has to go alongside questioning whether somebody like me can translate from a language which you know I learnt it 20 years ago I mm. haven't lived anywhere Spanish speaking for a long time my Spanish is you know often quite rusty I don't think there's any more reason why somebody working out of their mother tongue should be able to do it than 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 the doubts around me being able to do it, for example. Mm-hmm. No, it's, a, it's fascinating. I think it is a really important thing to consider. And I actually, I hope that the discussion is going to open up uh, more diversity in terms of the kind of storytelling that we get. And there's a kind of translating that we get as well. I think there, there's lots of possibility there. So it's quite an exciting time. Um, it is. It's, it's really exciting. Mm. And it's also just to you know answer your question in a slightly different way I think the idea you know this this trope that a lot of us maybe absorbed when we were first starting out or, or several years ago that you can only translate into your mother tongue it comes from this idea of somebody growing up in the UK going abroad learning a language and then coming back mm. and sort of bringing the spoils from yes they... a sort of colonial <laughs> hangover yeah it, it is yeah. yeah and I think we've got to be really careful about that you know mm. what does that mean about the kinds of stories that we're bringing what does that mean about the mediation process that's taken place yeah I think also perhaps a hangover of the assumption there used to be that a good translation was an invisible translation that a good translation should read like a, a Julian Barnes novel you know a sort of <laughs> um <laughs> and actually increasingly we're seeing translations that are much more adventurous in in terms of what they do with the English language as well as uh, because often the the source language is very adventurous and playful and and much like we were talking about with with down the rabbit hole so yeah I think that that's maybe part of it as well yes Um, no it's a really exciting time actually that was Rosalind Harvey in conversation with Anne Morgan you can find out more about Rosalind on the Royal Literary Fund website and that concludes episode 434 which was recorded and produced by Anne Morgan. Coming up in episode 435, Brian Clegg speaks with Caroline Sanderson about how he brought together his parallel passions for writing and for science, explains why we can all claim to be descended from royalty, and describes the sense of wonder that he believes is integral to science writing. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.